How's everyone doing being messed with two weeks in a row as far as your seating goes? You guys hanging in there with that? Yeah. You walk in, you're like, I don't know where to sit. My pew's gone. Um, you know what's good about that is we, we talk about this all the time here, but we, we speak often in our language about belonging to a church. And I'm fine with that language. It's biblical. Um, but it reminds us when we sit in somewhere different that we don't belong to a, a building, right? We belong to a group of people. And there's something even about physically coming and realizing you don't own a pew, and that's not what church is, is coming in and sitting in that seat. That seems really healthy. So, uh, listen, uh, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 58. We're going to start in the Old Testament this morning. And um, never be ashamed to look at the table of contents to find uh, books of the Bible in there. Uh, some of you didn't grow up with, um, you know, a Wana Olympics where you got to every verse in the, in, in the Bible in 3.2 seconds. Uh, that's quite all right. Um, at the same time, I would challenge you to uh, get to know all 66 books of, of the Bible. I was listening to a different preacher this week, a buddy of mine's church in Texas, and he said, um, he said all 66 books are about one story. It's not 66 different stories. It's one story. It's God's redemptive work starting at the beginning and going to the end. And I love that. I think that's so great. And uh, one of the things I don't want to do, we'll never cover in 52 weeks a year, we'll never cover all 66 books. That's not the point, necessarily. Um, and so get to know all 66 books. Listen, we are, uh, we are back into our, um, kind of we're on the second lap of going through worship, community, and share. And if you look around the room, some of you missed last week. I hope in your community groups, as you guys wrestled with the idea that God loves me, and if you missed last week, I hope you're like, man, I wonder what was going on and all that. I would just encourage you, take some time to read what your spiritual family thinks about and what God's doing in the lives of them as they wrote on tables and we experienced communion a little bit different last week and got to enjoy and just kind of some family time that, that went on. Um, I just, I've enjoyed going around even again this morning and seeing some, some that I didn't get to see. But we are back into our um, kind of really talk about the core of what we're about as a church. And we're on lap two of this idea of community and that God designed the church pretty simply, really. And one of the big core ideas of what it means to be a Jesus follower, what it means to be a Christian, is that you live in community. Let me just kind of by way of review, because some of you weren't here last time we went through this several weeks ago, um, is just kind of do a progress report. You know, one of the things we do in school, right? Some of you haven't been in school in a while, but uh, I now have kids in school, so I'm going to parent-teacher conferences again. But this time I'm not in trouble, so I really enjoy them. Um, it's a lot of fun. Um, but, you know, one of the things that you get is you get progress reports sometimes. And I love school these days because it's like you have on your iPhone at a moment-by-moment basis, you know, what's going on with your kids' grades and, and all that kind of stuff. But we don't do that sometimes in our spiritual walk. We don't ever have progress reports. Just see, how are we growing in this? Where are we, where are we weak? What, what grades are we doing just without even hardly thinking about it? We're getting good grades. And what are some real problem areas that we need help in? And there's something about school that says, you're, you're having an F in this. There are nine missing assignments. You have to pick up the pace in this or you're not graduating. There's something about that that gets our rear ends in gear and we go, yikes, I better get going on that. And usually mom and dad or someone, aunt and uncle, someone there who's helping you out through life says, get on this. This is really, really important. 
And so think of this as a progress report just from last time. We talked about the idea that close is not the same as connected. I showed you a box of puzzle pieces all in the same box, but they weren't connected. It's different than when you're really connected. We could be a bunch of puzzle pieces all in the same box. We're supposed to form some picture on the outside, but we never do. We're just all mishmash in there, and we never really connect at all. It's different than being connected. Secondly, we talked about the idea that a part of community is faith being expressed through love. That's how community is built, in fact. That we're not gathered here just to kind of have this vertical experience. God has designed it from the outset to have a horizontal experience as well, one with another. And we'll get into this more as we go on. Finally, this, that others are necessary for my spiritual growth. And the reality is, you will stay stunted in your growth. You will remain at certain levels in your spiritual walk until others come and hammer on you. Until others come and test you, right? Here's the other powerful idea. I will never get to where God designed me to be without your help. Without you being involved in my life, I won't get there. And without me being involved in your life, you won't get there. That's the way God designed it. And if you look to the person on your left and on your right and in front of you and behind you, look around you, you need these people. That's part of how God designed it. So that's where we're going. Isaiah chapter 58, starting in verse 2. I want to read for you a passage that, uh, as we go through these, one of the things I don't want to, want to do... Um, too much is to somehow compartmentalize worship and community and share. I genuinely believe that there's a certain progression that goes on to building a church and to building a spiritual life. And it all has to begin with worship. It has to begin with a relationship with God. It, it begins there. That's the foundation. If you don't have the foundation right, it's like trying to learn to read without ever learning your alphabet. It makes no sense whatsoever. And so there, there is a progression here, and yet these lines kind of blur. We're going to see today that part of community, part of really getting along, part of loving one another involves sharing. And it better flow from a heart of worship or it all gets screwy on you. So these all are kind of one idea, but they're also a progression. This passage kind of wraps these three ideas. Think of the idea of worship, the idea of community, and the idea of sharing as you know it right now. In regards to this passage, Isaiah chapter 58, follow along, verse 2. For day after day, this is the Lord talking through the prophet Isaiah, talking about the people of God, his chosen people. For day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions. They seem eager for God to come near them. Why why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends, catch this, in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Those are just signs of remorse and and penitence, like I'm really humble and remorseful about my sin. 
Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the chosen, is, is not this the kind of fast I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. And we'll stop there. Here's what this passage is saying. God is calling out his people. It would be the same today if we came and with tears in our eyes and emotion in our voice and all kinds of passion, we sang words to God. And we just sang about how humble we were. We sang about how appreciative we are to God. And we say that we're so sorry about our sins. And we say, God, bring just decisions. Bring your kingdom here on earth. And then to get up out of our chairs, say, God bless you, leave, get in our car, and begin treating one another as less important than ourselves. To get home and to forget everything that we just talked about, sang about, learned, and cried out to God about. And just went our way. Not only went our way, but actually went our way into sin. And just like we can see that today and say, that would be really hypocritical. There would be a massive disconnect. That's what God was calling the people here, saying, that's what you're doing. So don't be shocked that your worship isn't getting through to me. There's a, there's a way we worship, and we talked about that, and we'll continue to talk about that. As, as the band is leading us in worship, hopefully they're instructing us in worship too. And does the band have it figured out? No. It's, an, it's a conversation. But God says there better not be a disconnect between your worship and your lifestyle because when there is, something's totally broken. And what happens is we become Christians kind of in name only and in location only and in what we wear and what we, you know, the style of music and this, that, and the other thing, translation of the scripture, whatever it might be. And people look at all of that and go, I want none of that. That looks like a bizarre club. And you know what? They're absolutely right. I heard it said once, religion makes a terrible hobby. It's true. Pick a different hobby. I mean, if you're not going to do this thing for real, don't make this your hobby. It's lousy as a hobby. So, moving on into community, here's what I want to drive home with that. I want to drive home that this is an extension of our worship. So as we talk about this today, in the same way that you say, man, I would never forsake God's Word. I would, um, I would never do certain things that I see in Scripture. If you search the Scriptures even casually, you will discover that the way that you and I treat one another has a huge bearing on what we truly and really believe. That's it. Let's go from there. Uh, first thing in your notes, if you want to write it down, is this. That getting along is not just hard, it's impossible. Okay? Has anyone else figured this out yet? You can do it for a while, right? If it was just hard, it means this. It means that some in this room who were super like relationally ripped, and they just work out relationally all the time, that they could somehow skate through life and they could get it. They could do it. They could get along with people. I'll tell you right now, I'm a people person. I get energized by being with people. I love engaging with people. God's wired me this way. I don't work out at it. I don't try to do it or whatever else. But here's the deal. As much as I love people, people bug me. Man, there's days I just get sick of being with people. And there's days I just go, man, Lord, I don't want to talk to another person right now. I'm a people person. 
What I'm saying is this, is that I don't care if you're a people person, there's no way, it's not just hard, it's impossible to constantly get along with people. Something fake is going on. You can do it for six weeks, 12 weeks, some of you 28 weeks, but you're lying to yourself. There's little things brewing inside of you. And what you realize, you go, man, I don't really like this other person. That's the bottom line of this. They bug me. And you watch this in relationships all the time. I love being a youth pastor because, you know, you'd talk to someone. Anytime there was a couple that got together in my youth group, I'd always want to bring them in and just talk to them a little bit. I'd say, look, I'm watching you every moment of the day. I've had your parents install cameras. I know. No, I'm just kidding. But here's what I'd do. I'd just discuss with them. I'd say, look, let's, let's just talk about this a little bit. And you know what's fun to do is you talk about this guy and you go, hey, tell me about this girl. What do you find so attractive about this person? And they just, man, they can rattle on. And then you ask this question. You go, what bugs you about this person? You know what the answer is? Yeah. Bugs me? Well, why on earth would I go out with a girl who bugs me? And I go, nothing bugs you about her? No. Well, then you don't know her very well. No, 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 no. Dave, you don't know her. You, no, 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 you don't know her. This one's different. I go, yeah, sure she is. And you ask the girl, what's wrong with this guy? And she doesn't know, so I tell her. And, and it, just, it just makes things really, really splendid. Um, here's the deal. The reason relationships in junior high last a couple of weeks is because they start figuring this out. They go, man, this person actually kind of bugs me. And the reason sometimes we, we never grow out of this cycle and so sometimes people figure this out the first couple of marriages. And they go, man, I thought somehow marriage would make it different. It doesn't. Getting along is impossible. Okay? Now, if the story ended there, we'd all leave, kind of go, all right, there you go, honey. See? We're just bound to fight the rest of our life. It doesn't end there, though. There's, there's, more, there's more to the instruction. Here's the title this morning, Get Along. And with the idea of get along, I've just got three things in your, in your, in your notes. It kind of means different things. But one of them is this. Kind of like get along, get moving. Like, let, let's get going on this. Get along, little doggy. Like that kind of idea, okay? Like move forward in this. Here's the other thing about get along. How many of you moms say this? Kids, get along. Or some variation of that, okay? Yeah, if you're a mom, you say that. Why do you say that? Because your kids don't get along, right? Remember, moms and dads, it's impossible for them. Now, kids, here's what you don't get to do, especially middle schoolers. You don't get to look back at mom and dad and say, I can't. Okay? That'd be a sweet cop-out. But I'm telling you right now, you're not allowed to do that. You've got to listen to the rest of the message. Here's the last thing. Get along. Here's a really, really long bike. I don't know. Carol was saying this. I don't know how they even rode this thing. I don't know if they really did or not. But I don't think they doctored photos in 1915. So I think it's pretty accurate. Um, but, but getting along requires this. It's a, it's, a, it's a marathon, not a sprint kind of an idea. Once again, it's kind of easy so the other idea just being that it's, it's, it's not seasonal. It's, it's instead of a seasonal hike, like I, I enjoy going for a short hike with my family. That's easy. I can pull that off. This is a trek. This is a trek across the entire country or something. And so you just go, man, this is impossible on my own. This is impossible to just muster up the strength and get this going. Are we good, Jeff? Yes. Thank you. All right, enough on the title. Um, John thirteen thirty four. I put it in your notes because it's so important. I want you to look at it. I want you to see it. I, I toyed with reading off about 30 verses right now in this segment of just driving home this point that this is absolutely and utterly and unequivocally commanded by God for us to do. But I'm going to give you just one because it ought to be enough that Jesus said it this strongly. Ready? John 13:34. A new command I give you. Love one another. 
As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Would you circle two words in that phrase? One is command. The other one is the word must. There's nothing really optional here, is there? When I leave the house, okay? When I leave the house, there are some things that I, that I leave as optional, okay? And I say, well, this is optional. There are other things that my kids are absolutely crystal clear on because they're commands. And I make crystal clear, this is a command. This is not optional. Do you understand this? And we, we get on the same page with that. So, so this idea of loving one another is a command that you must do. It's quite, it's quite simple. That's really the first thing I want you to write down, is that you must love others. You must love others. There's something inside some of us that thinks that seems kind of disconnected. And some of us just think, you must love others? And it seems like those two things ought not be in the same sentence. And here's what I think is going on with that, because I sort of sense that in me. I go, man, there's something that doesn't feel right about that. Isn't love voluntary? Isn't that why it's so precious and so special? Here's the thing about it. We have bought into, mind you, we live in a certain time and place. And we have been seduced kind of by a culture into some certain ways of thinking. And a lot of times that seeps into our our consciousness and our brains about how we view the world. If you watch, listen to, read most things coming, coming just at us in a general way, Much of it, if not most of it, is tying love to a couple of different things. One is emotion, right? We get that one right off the bat. We understand that. That if you feel right, it's going to be right. If the stars are sort of aligned and you meet this person and the sun's shining in the right way, then you'll know it's love. And so it's sort of mystical, right? It's kind of out there. And people fall in love and they fall back out of love. So it's just happening to them. They're walking along. I don't know. I'm just walking along. Boom. I was on my back. I was in love. You know, I just fell into this hole. I don't know what happened. So there's sort of this, this mystery to it, right? And there's sort of an emotion to it. And there's sort of this, you know, very unobjective, subjective kind of thing being thrust at us. And so to be told you must love one another seems to go contrary to that. I can't force myself to love one another. I can't force myself to love another person. That's not what God teaches. Let's read it again. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have told you, so you must love one another. Here's what I'm saying. Love is an act of our will, and it's a decision that we make. You know who gets this? People who are in arranged marriages. Anyone get together in an arranged marriage in here? Okay, we live in a we live in a place that's yeah. Some of you are like it feels like it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we live in a place that has other cultures. I thought maybe we had it, but it's not very common here in America, right? But but throughout the world and really throughout the centuries, that's been a very common practice. Arranged marriages. Guess what? I would say those who who kind of live in the way that God wants them to live as husband and wife, have understood quite clearly. You try and tell them love is a decision you make. It's an act of the will. They go, duh, of course it is. And they get it just like that. But I think in our rights-centered, me-centered idea of kind of Western thinking, we go, it's all about me and it's who I choose. And I would venture to say it's not working out great in that. It's just a thought. The Bible shatters the myth that it's based on emotion, compatibility, and aligning stars. Here's what, here's what love's always been about. Love has been about an adult daughter helping her father in, her, in his later years. 
and tending to every need, whether she feels like it or not, for year after year after year. That's what love is. Love is mom stumbling her way kind of down the hallway to clean up the vomit that child has thrown up in their room for the third time that night. And when she looks at the clock, it's 4.11. That would be a.m. And that would be a problem. But that's love. That's what it is. Love is Jesus Christ stooping down the teacher to his followers and being clothed like a servant, acting like a servant because he came as a servant and washing those feet of his disciples and then rising up again to spread his arms out on a cross and die for their sins. That's what love is. The Bible couldn't be more clear about it. Do you ever feel like doing the three things I just said? I hope not or else you're psychotic. That's bizarre. You know what? It's an act of the will, isn't it? It's aligning your will. And when you see that Christ did everything that his father told him to do, that's where it becomes a powerful picture of the father's heart toward us. Regardless of how difficult it may seem, you and I, Christians, are to actively, consistently, and deeply, actively, consistently, and deeply love the people that God brings in our circles of influence, in our everyday life. And here's what it is, especially to those who are other Christians. I think I put it in your notes, but look at Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. Galatians 6, 10 says this, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of, peop- of, of believers. I want you to start with the word all. All people. Circle that. The love that we are to possess is to be an indiscriminate kind of love. It's to be a love that is not a respecter of persons. Gee, you're a doorman and you're you're the CEO. I'm going to love you and choose to ignore you or slight you or not think about you that much. I'm going to learn your name and your kids' names and your birthday and your anniversary. But you I won't have the time of day for. That's discrimination in our love for one another. You're a senior in high school. You seem to be popular. You seem to be able to get me somewhere. You're a freshman. You're a peon. I was picked on when I was a freshman, so I'm going I'm to pick on you, freshman. That's discrimination in your love for one another. We're, we're to love all people. Here's the second thing. Circle the word as we have opportunity. Circle the word opportunity. The word opportunity reminds you and I that each moment becomes this, this possibility this, this possibility that's, that's unlocked when we actually obey and we take steps of obedience to do this thing. But it means walking with the Lord in such a way that you go, God, I'm not sure why I had to get rerouted in my commute, but you do. Maybe there's an opportunity for charity here. Maybe there's an opportunity. Who, who is it you want me meeting today? Do you see how I'm now in my commute with my eyes turned to Jesus, fixing my eyes on Jesus who holds all things together? So now my singing becomes my life, and my life is what I sing back to God at the end of the week? Man, that's a powerful connect when that all goes together. And it says, as we have opportunity. So does that mean you need to feel guilty about not ministering to street people in New York City right now? No. You know why? You're not in New York City right now. Now, if God starts calling you to New York City street people, you better not be sitting in our church in a few weeks. You better be responding to that and listening to that and moving as God calls you to do. 
But as you have opportunity means this. I don't need to feel guilty about the million and one people I could be helping. I better feel guilty about the people that are right in front of me. And God has prompted my heart, help this person. Become their answer to prayer. And I say, no, I think I'm better than that person. God, my needs are way more important than theirs. So I can't take time out of my day to help them. You better feel guilty about that. That better, that better go in and cut you and hurt you. Christian is who I'm speaking to today. Because that's where God's put you. Do you think you're in your neighborhood by accident? You're not. Your cubicle, you're not. Your dead-end job, it's not a dead-end job if God's got you there. Pay attention. As you have opportunity, you better be doing some good. And then the third word I want you to circle in this phrase, really simple, is especially Christians. Especially to those who belong to the household of faith to those who are believers, to those who are your spiritual family. The Bible talks about the man in his his family, that he's out doing all this good for everyone else, but he's neglecting his own home. It says that that person's worse than an unbeliever. Get your house in order. Let it start there. Let that bubble out into your church community. And let that be an expression that just keeps on going. And is it somehow held there? Here's the two extremes that I'm seeing right now. And there's probably others, but this is just what I'm seeing. One is this. Some people are abandoning believers. It's really popular to write a book right now that says the church is so screwed up. Christians are the most annoying people you can possibly imagine. I'm a Christian. I'm one of them. But all of them, whoever that is, all of them, we're going to just abandon them. I'm going to love the non-Christians like God's called us to do and abandon them. That's unscriptural and satanic and it's sabotage to the mission of Jesus Christ. Do not go there. If you're reading a book that says that, you want to have huge warning lights going off in your life saying, this sounds wrong. Is it easier to just divorce your family in some way and say, look, I come from some podunk town back in New Hampshire and I just... I just want to get away from all of that. I'm going to reinvent myself in L.A. Now, is that easier than dealing with it? It seems like it, right? But, it, but, it's, but it, does it make you any less part of the family? No, it doesn't. There's a certain sense that people are abandoning Christians. Guess what? Christians are annoying to get along with sometimes. But here's how I say that. We, me, are annoying to get along with. We're part of it. We're part of the spiritual family. Don't abandon the family of God. Here's the other thing. Sometimes people cling to Christians. So you either abandon Christians altogether and say, I'm going to love the world like Jesus told me to, but I can't stand Christians. Or you go the other route, and it forms kind of a Christian ghetto, and we all cling to one another, and we all have the same things in common. We all debate and talk about the same things. We all rail on the same morals that are going down the tubes in the world, and we all talk, 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 and have fellowships and potlucks. Right? And meanwhile, Jesus is just crying, going, where's my, where's my body at? I did not leave you here. I did not die for you to get fat, either spiritually or physically, at potlucks. And, and, and in essence, you could think of this in some ways as a potluck. Is a potluck a good thing? It's a great thing, depending on how lucky you are with the potluck, I suppose. But it can become a really, really bad thing. If this is the sum total of what we do as, as, as Christians and come and get fed and come and get fed and come and get fed, then it's a terrible thing. 
We're constantly saying, look, we know we're going to gravitate towards one another. Most of us tend to struggle more with clinging to each other, don't we? You know why? It's scary out there. I don't know what they're going to ask me. They're going to ask me things I don't know. They're going to ask me things that I'm ashamed about that I should know. That I say I base my life on. You know what that does? That either drives you to your knees in prayer and study of God's word to seek out the truth. Or, or it reminds you daily of the grace that you need to be sustained and to live. It also reminds you of your weakness. God doesn't take the biggest, brightest, smartest people. Thank God. Or else most of us in this room would never have a place in the kingdom. He takes the rest of us so that he gets the glory. All right. Not only must we love one another, you must have God's spirit to love as he does. Here's the good news. Kids, here's why you're not allowed to say it's impossible for me to get along. Because kids get to have the Holy Spirit too. Praise God. And so you get to walk in Christ's power. You get to walk in the resurrected Christ's power to love other people. This is where it gets super exciting. 1 John 4, 7 says this. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Get that part. Love comes from God. Anytime you're loving, you're just being like God. It comes from God. It did not originate with you or romance novels or Kenny G or whoever you, know, you might think it has originated from. It comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, there's a certain sense the Bible te- teaches this, that you and I are able to love in the flesh. You and I are able to love on some level, right? And there's some value to that. Just like working out. Paul says elsewhere, working out, there's some value to keeping your body in shape. But all you're going to get is a perishable wreath or this you know, coming January, February time frame, a perishable gold medal right up in Vancouver. But the things you do in the Spirit and for the Spirit are eternal. And the reward is eternal. And it's otherly. It's, it's, it's supernatural. It's different. So you and I are able to love on some level in the flesh, just like anyone in our neighborhood can. But it takes God in our life to do something of infinite and eternal value. Let me read for you Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. This is Jesus talking. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the, the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I'm glad Jesus stopped there. He didn't. He goes on. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, I can sort of do that. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil person and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? There it is. That's loving in the flesh. Someone invites you to party, you invite them to a party. That's not hard. We get that. that that's, that's not impossible for us, right? We can do that on our own. And if you greet only, the, only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. You don't need God to invite people who like you to your birthday party. It's that simple. Here's the, here's the kicker. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
I, I want you, as you walk out these doors and you start trying to live this out today, in your home, in the van on the way home, and then tomorrow at work, I want you to remember that being perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect is not in your capacity to do. It just isn't. You need God's Holy Spirit there. So what's your source of strength in it? As you start to do it and you're trying to muster up strength to love this person, you ought to be praying, crying out for patience. You ought to be saying, Lord, I'm going to a family function in two weekends and I'm going to start fasting and praying right now because I need your grace just to be who you want me to be in that room. God, I've got this neighbor. I mean, it's hard enough for me to love my neighbor. I've got this neighbor. And they're, every, they're, they're for everything you're against and everything I stand for. Would you please give me the grace to understand how to act in that situation? It ought to be a constant whispering to the Holy Father to just say, Lord, I want to love these people well. Here's a challenge. How's your quotient going just as a couple? If you're not nurturing it, if you're not growing towards intimacy, the nature of relationships is they're not static. They don't stay just parallel. They're moving away or they're moving toward. Who is it this week that you need to reach out to and email and get together with for coffee and make things right with? Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe you're sitting next to them right now. How about your kids? Life has a way of getting in the way of building intimacy, doesn't it? Talked to a mom yesterday. She said, I'm running my kid from here to here to here to here to here to here. The kid's 10. You know what the kid said to her at one point? Mom. You've got me in too much stuff. Mom, listen. Mom's hearing that. Gosh, I feel this pressure to give my kid every opportunity in the world. And I'm killing him. He doesn't just get to be a kid that way. Maybe all that junk is keeping you from intimacy and from growing in your relationships. We're going to watch a video in just a second. But before we do, I want to tell a story, uh, share a story that we read this morning. Just so when my kids were up a little bit earlier, we read out of the book of Acts. Okay? Here's Paul and Silas. They are preaching Christ. They're doing Christ's work. What happens? A mob forms. They get beat up. They get stripped and beaten and thrown in jail. You know what Paul and Silas do? They whine and they moan and they cry out against God and they say, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus said that. And they call their small group and say that God's abandoned them. Wrong. It says that they were singing hymns and praying at midnight in a jail cell. You know what it says the rest of the people were doing? The rest of the people in prison were listening to them. A lot of you guys know the story. An earthquake comes. All the doors fling wide open. They had every opportunity to walk out. The jailer's about to kill himself. Paul and Silas says, wait, it's totally dark. Wait, we're all here. Spare yourself. He rushes and turns the lights on. Everyone's there. You know what he says? First thing out of his mouth, what must I do to be saved? You have something radically different than I've ever seen before. I want it. He then preaches Christ to him. Shows him the path to God. That's loving your enemies. I can promise you that jailer wasn't being kind and cordial to Paul and Silas leading up to that. I, I love that Paul didn't say, well, and make him squirm a little bit. Go make me some breakfast first. You need to do some nice things for me. Do you see this bruise? You know what's awesome? Is after he does that, it says that the jailer bandaged up their wounds. He cared for them. It led to good works. It led to community. 
That's loving your enemies. Now, if you're like me, sometimes you read that in the scriptures and you go, well, that's only happening 2,000 years ago. How am I supposed to relate with that? I want you to watch this video right now and understand that today, right now, this is happening in the world. paying a huge price because of their loyalty to Jesus Christ and their love for Him. They may be abandoned by others, but not by God. My Father in this world left me, but my Father in heaven will never leave me. I love my parents so much. I want them to know that I'm praying that the Lord will open their hearts and minds. I would like to send a message to my dad. You say you want to kill me, to shed my blood in public. No matter what decision you make, I forgive you. There are two ways when the government finds out someone is a Christian. There is execution. And number two, when a Christian gives up their religion, they are sent to the countryside to political concentration camps. If they found me praying, or encouraging my friends in Christ, they'll take me and put me in prison. They try to force us to deny our faith and beat us when we refuse. The mob threatened us, saying that India belongs to Hindus. Christians do not belong here. They make slogan, Christians have to move from this village, otherwise we will kill. They warned us that if we rebuilt the churches, they would kill us. They would break our body into pieces, just like they broke our church into pieces. Many have come to me and said that they went to a church and were told not to come. That makes my heart sad. I can't see how we are second-class believers. Just because some inherited their faith from their parents and others searched for God and found Him. Many Christians have abandoned us. They could have helped us, but they didn't. These people are supposed to stand with us and have a part in solving our problems. First, the Christians were pushing us to go to the church and be at the meetings. But after I went to jail, they said, please don't come to the church again to avoid us having problems. We are asking the Lord to give us more boldness, to give us the strength to bear His name and to stand strong in the face of terrible persecution. They cannot burn Christ and the church from our hearts. We are in God's hands. I have the Holy Spirit inside me, and He gives me the strength not to be afraid. It was really hard, but praise God, God took every fear. No one backslides, no one left Christ. They became very strong believers. My faith was never shaken. I know that in all situations, God is with me. Whenever the persecution come in your life, do not be discouraged. Just go and ask strength from God, and God will save you. God will guide you in every difficulty, in every difficult situation. Keep strong faith in God. I will always trust God, who gives me another new life. Always God with me everywhere. God has strengthened me. He has made me bold. I cannot stop. I must continue this because I was chosen by God for this world. 
We want people around the world to pray for us. We want people to speak out on our behalf so that we can have the freedom to practice our faith. There's a lot of TV, a lot of videos you could watch, and um, some of it's really, really worthwhile to kind of stir our hearts, stir our minds to things of Christ. Um, when I watch something like that, it makes me realize I have very, very little to forgive you in this room. I just do. As of yet, none of you have come and beat me up for preaching Christ. It's sobering, isn't it? To watch a video like that and understand that Paul and Silas, they were some of the the first of the new church to experience what has continued to go on through all the ages until today. And God's still at work. In this world, you will have troubles, it says. When I read that, when I look at that, when I see that video, it it, it moves me to this. A, that is unnatural, supernatural kind of love. Dad, I know you want my body spread about the city because you hate me and what I stand for for Christ. But whatever your decision, I forgive you. That's unnatural. You would be told by those in your office not to do that. That is not how you should act. God says that's exactly how you should act. And I... I'm excited about that when you do that. I want to just move on and kind of close our time off with some application. How? How do I do that? Here's Here's the first part of it. You must have the Holy Spirit. We already covered that, right? You must have the Holy Spirit. But the second part of it is this. When the Spirit comes and dwells with us, His role in our life is that He is sanctifying us. He's growing us up into the image of Christ. He's, he's perfecting us. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's perfecting us. One of the women in the video said, the Holy Spirit gives me strength to sustain this. So, ongoing discipleship is what, is what sanctification is all about. Here's, here's an inward expression of ongoing discipleship. It's the love of God. Again, kind of in our in our really simplistic way of defining worship and thinking about worship, it's, it's that which makes God smile. Whether it be your thoughts, your actions, your tongue, the way you spend your money, invest your time, and what you own and what you wear and how you pull it off. Does it make God smile? If it does, that gets to be worship. That is, that is showing God off for who He is. Worship is an inward expression that this discipleship, that this process is going on. There's a whole book on this. But the whole idea of of practicing the, 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 the presence of Christ, of taking what we do here and what we think about here and what we're challenged to do here and bringing it with us all the rest of the week and then coming together midweek with our community group and saying, man, I just got to tell you about my week. It's unbelievable. Or... I just got to confess. I think I left Christ at church on Sunday. It's been a miserable few days. I'm growing lukewarm and apathetic. And you have your brothers and sisters come around you and say, don't do that. 
Let us pray for you. Let us gather around you and guard you. The whole idea of praying without ceasing. I hope as you go through your day that words of thanks are rolling off of your tongue. You know when I'm most thankful for my car? I was going to say when it's raining, but right now my Jeep top is off, so that's not even true. But when it's, when it's raining and I'm in my family van with all my family warm, you know I'm really thankful for my car right then. After it's been broken down and I get it back, I'm extra thankful for my car right then. And, 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 what, I, and what, what, what should go on with us is that we're constantly evaluating, taking stock of things, just being thankful of things. How many of you thank God for this today? Man, I'm thankful. And we get to use it in praise, or we get to use it with wicked fists beating on each other. Our choice. Inward disciplines of meditation, study, fasting, prayer, those ought to be going on in our lives. If you don't know much about those, I'd start with Celebration of Discipline. It's a great book by Richard Foster. Our men's group went through it a couple of, uh, I don't know, maybe years ago now. Another book by Don Whitney, I think it is, that I have called um, uh, Did I just say Celebration of Disciplines? Okay, it's called something else. Um, (laughs) Spiritual Disciplines uh, for Godliness or something like that. Get a book on it. Find out more about this. Is fasting for today or is that just something that was, that was for, for long ago? What's meditation all about? I thought that was Eastern mysticism. Get a book on it. Read a chapter on it. Seek the scriptures on these ideas. Start developing these things. Here's the outward discipline. Here's the outward expression of this is loving one another. If the inward expression of our ongoing discipleship is love for God and an ever-growing capacity to love God then our outward expression of this is just loving one another. That's kind of our litmus test. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, I put this in your notes. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. What is an example of Christ? Here it is. I'm going to give you three things. One is he had a selfless love, didn't he? The love of Christ is selfless. You, you just read the story, start to finish. He's a selfless lover. So when you wonder what that looks like, stay in the Gospels. Get back in the Gospels. Read the Gospels and see how Jesus interacted with people. As Jesus interacted with people, you interact with people. That means you're disinterested in what you receive in return. Some of you have tasted the joy and freedom of giving like this. Some of you are just givers in this room relational givers. And you want to come and just pour out and bless on people. And you know what? Some of you in this room are receivers. And the way that you give, you you parcel it out, but you're very guarded about it. And you're certainly keeping a budgeted number of, I'm going to give it back, but what am I getting back in return? I have a friend. He's actually sitting in this room. He knows who he is. He makes this joke sometimes. We get talking about spiritual things and we'll, we'll, we'll bang on each other about different things. And once in a great while he goes, he's like, Dave, what are you getting out of this relationship? <laughs> because I feel, like, I feel like I'm always pouring things out to you. And it's not like that. We, we give and receive. We give and take. But you know what? If you're that person, if you're that person who constantly says, gimme, 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 I'm the one always in need, pray for me, and you've never once lifted your eyes above that to give away to others, something's really, really broken. You know what? I can do that without God's Holy Spirit in me. I can think of myself. Some of you who are givers, keep it up. Do it joyfully. 
There's a, there's a reception in being able to give without worrying about what's received in return. If it's selfless, it's a gift, and gifts are offered. There's no payment required for gifts. It's just joyful to be able to give someone something, and they go, oh, man, what do I owe you for this? And I've just been blessed like this so many times. Man, is there anything I can give you back? I just, I'm so grateful. They go, no, that's just a gift, man. Just take it. And it's humbling sometimes, isn't it, to receive a gift. That's the kind of love that we ought to have for one another, is that it's offered and that it's just received by someone else. I'm going to give you some different beginning steps. Some of you are already doing this. Keep it up. Here's a, here's a beginning point. Start denying yourself inwardly. You know what? When you start with the inward expression of discipleship, you begin to learn about self-denial. You begin to, to, to understand what it means to, uh, to use Old English, mortify the flesh, to put the flesh to death, to wake up and say, that person's needs over there are more important than mine. And to state that audibly to yourself so you have a right framework walking in. And as you start to deny yourself inwardly, as you start to train yourself inwardly toward that end, you know what will begin to happen? As you begin to interact with people, you will understand what it means to yield your rights in favor of someone else. So a a starting point is to start training your spirit, training your mind. Your flesh is a baby. It whines against anything taken away from it, doesn't it? Mine does. I need! Gimme, 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 gimme! You turn to it and be in control of it and say, no, stop it. What's a fruit of the Spirit, part of the fruit of the Spirit? Self-control, right? So when you start seeing that, don't take glory for it. Oh, I'm pretty bad. I'm a sweet dude. I, I got my flesh under control. You know what? You tried that. That's the Holy Spirit at work in you. That's a gift. Pipe down. But that's, that's, that takes training. That doesn't come overnight. Here's the second thing. Christ's love was forgiving. The only one who can forgive is the offended party. True? You get wronged by me. I could go ask someone else for their forgiveness. It doesn't matter. I need to go and seek you out. And then you have the power in your control to forgive or to deny that forgiving, huh? That's how it works. And so ultimately, David caught this, the psalmist. Every one of our sins, while it may be uh, secondarily here, it's always first against God. So Christ comes along and he's the forgiver of our sins. Because all of our missing the mark is an affront to who he is and who he made us to be. So you now have the power, when you're wronged, to be the one who's able to be forgiving. Disciples come along, and like you and I, don't, don't think they're any different than us. They wanted to kind of find the line. Don't turn there. We don't have time. Just listen to Matthew eighteen twenty one. Then Peter came to Jesus, trying to find the line. How far, Lord? Surely you can't mean this goes too far. Tell me the line. How far do I have to go? How much? Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? And then he, and then he tosses out, I'm sure, what he thinks he's going to get brownie points for. Seven times? I mean, that's a lot. After two times, I'm pretty ticked off. Three times, I'm given a lecture. Four times, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm beside myself. He says seven times. He thinks he's being a pretty righteous guy. I love Jesus. He turns to math. Ben, you'd like that. He says, I'll take your suggested seven. Instead of adding to it, let's multiply here, shall we? How about 70 times seven? And then he says this. I love it. Verse 22 of Matthew 18 says this. Or verse 23. 
It says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man owed him 10,000 talents. That's like millions of dollars and was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. That's the happy part of the story. Verse 28 says, But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's a few bucks. He grabbed him, began to choke him. Pay back what you owe, he demanded. His fellow servants fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servants just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned over, turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Catch this last part. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brothers from the heart. You think this is important to Jesus? Now, look at the blackboard here. Was Jesus really trying to get at a number? Wait, I think someone erased one of these. Let's start over. Let me count over again. I think we're in like 102. I forgot the number. No. What he's illustrating is he says, you know what? Stop keeping tally marks with one another. Once again, I find it incredibly convicting to think that we can't get this here in the West when there's people not just on a screen being beat for their faith right now, but in real life living that out today. And their church service might mean two of them huddled together, broken, bruised, naked, rejected and abandoned by everything that they care about in this world, singing hymns and praying like Paul and Silas and forgiving their parents for turning them in, forgiving their tormentors, begging for the prayers of the saints, the community, the family of God around the world. Enough said on that. Here's the beginning step for that one. Meditate and remember all that you've been forgiven of and continue to be forgiven of in Christ. I think the action step out of that is quite plain and simple. If we could just get our heads around, not just at communion, not just at the worship song time, not just in our devotional quiet time, but if we could be reminded throughout the day of all that you and I have been forgiven, the debts that, one, that we owe one another is incredibly small. And when we read a parable like this, Jesus is driving home. This is serious stuff. Finally, Jesus Christ's love was sacrificing love. Here's the reality. Every act of service, every act of yielding, every act of saying you're more important than me will cost you something. And your flesh will whine against it. It just will. Your flesh doesn't want to die. And so sacrificing love has to come from somewhere else. I think it's easy to sacrifice and give to God on some level because he's deserving of it. It's really hard. It's really hard and takes supernatural strength to sacrifice and give to someone who you deem not worthy of it. God, perfect. 
Your next door neighbor, not. Your boss, not. Your, your cousin, not. And so we make judgments and we fall into these weird little traps. Christ says, love like I do. Follow my example. I want to invite the band on up right now. The book of 1 John takes this idea of obedience and love. And, and, and John, the author, in that little epistle, takes those two words and he almost uses it interchangeably. There's a couple of passages where he starts off with obedience and says love, and then says love and says obedience, and they're tied together. Because love is a choice. Love is an act of our will. If you're not loving, it's not because you're not a people person. It's not because you've been dealt a raw deal. It is plain and simple because you're either loving out of the flesh or you're not submitted to God's Holy Spirit who dwells in you. That's the bottom line. It's a sin issue, not a personality issue. To accomplish supernatural love, we must be empowered by God's Spirit. And praise God for God's family. You know what? I need you. You need me. Romans 12, the second part of Romans 12, 5 says this. We are many parts of the body and we all belong to each other. I need other believers in my life and they need me. Here's the questions that our community groups are going to wrestle with this week. One of them is this. What is keeping you from making a greater commitment to your community group? A deeper commitment to your community group. Here's my question for those of you who don't have a community group. What is keeping you from making a commitment to a community group? That's my question that I want to leave you with. We're about to sing a song. It's called Once Again. And it's saying, once again, I look upon the cross. I'm thinking about the sacrifice. Far be it from us as a congregation that walks out of here and just checks out what we're about to sing about and how we go out and interact with people in this world. God, I know that if we can get this right, I know that if churches in oppressed, persecuted parts of the world can get this right and unite on essential truths, unite on Christ, on the Scriptures, and on their love for one another, God, that You would be shown off in a way that cannot be fought against and won. Lord, this morning, we as a a part of the body have churning stomachs and burning hearts for brothers and sisters today who are not sitting in comfortable chairs, not wearing clean clothes, and did not have breakfast. God, unite our hearts not just to pray for people, think about people once in a while, but to action, which we'll look at next week, to really share with them. And God, then to understand that spiritually we have the naked and the oppressed and the yoke of slavery on people all around us, one mile from where we're all sitting right now. God, do this work in my heart. Help us to love our families in such a way, God, that our families together can be this light. And that we, as we join together as families, God, become an even greater light in this neighborhood. Father, your word could not be more crystal clear 
And so this morning, now we're just left, each one of us, individually with a choice of what to do with it. We confess and cry out for your Holy Spirit to help us walk in grace this morning, God. In Jesus' name, amen.